Psalm 83 is uh, our text this morning. Uh, we began this a couple of weeks ago and uh, want to bring at least this particular <clears throat> study to conclusion. It is, to some degree, a prophecy update. And uh, if you ever look at the things that are happening in the world today, it, it may bring you to ask that same question, what in the world is going on? Because so much is going on in the world that uh, defies logic and description <laughs> in a lot of different ways. But to the believer in Jesus Christ and the believer in the word of God, it tells us we're living in the last days and we need to be looking for the return of Jesus Christ. The psalmist, in verses 1 through 18, and this is the whole psalm, I want to read it to you. The psalmist writes, and by the way, the psalmist is Asaph, it's attributed to Asaph, who was one of the great musicians of, of, of David, but um, he was also a prophet. And so... Here he speaks as a prophet. He says, Keep not thou silence, O God. Hold not thy peace, and be not still, O God. For lo, thine enemies make a tumult, and they that hate thee have lifted up the head. They have taken crafty counsel against thy people, and consulted against thy hidden ones. They have said, Come, and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be no more in remembrance." For they have consulted together with one consent. They are confederate against thee. The tabernacles of Edom and the Ishmaelites, of Moab and the Hagarenes, Gebal and Ammon and Amalek, the Philistines with the inhabitants of Tyre, Ashur also is joined with them. They have holpen or helped the children of Lot. Do unto them as unto the Midianites, as to Sisera, as to Yabin at the brook of Kison, which perished at Endor. They became as dung for the earth. Make their nobles like Oreb and like Zeb, yea, all their princes as Zeba and as Almuna, who said, Let us take to ourselves the houses of God in possession. O oh my God, make them like a wheel, as the stubble before the wind. As the fire burneth a wood, as the flame setteth the mountains on fire, so persecute them with thy tempest, and make them afraid with thy storm. Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek thy name, O Lord. Let them be confounded and troubled forever. Yea, let them be put to shame and perish, that men may know that thou, whose name alone is Jehovah, or Yahweh, art the Most High over all the earth. Shall we pray? Our Father, we ask now for the anointing blessing of your Holy Spirit with your wisdom and understanding, Lord, to prepare our hearts for the days that are yet ahead. We thank you, Lord, that your word is true. We pray that we would understand it and know it, not only for our own sake, but, Lord, for the sake of those who need to know of the times in which we live, and that we can be very responsible in, in sharing what we know from your word to encourage people to turn to the love of Jesus Christ. We ask this today in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Before we continue our study of Psalm 83 and its connection to Ezekiel 38, which, uh, by the way, uh, we're currently studying on Wednesday evening, I'd like to offer some important and pertinent information regarding the study of prophecy, especially in the days and in the times in which we live. In J. Barton Payne's Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy, he states that 26.8% of the Bible is devoted to prophecy and prophetic content. Now, 1,817 prophecies are explained in 8,353 verses. And since there are 31,000 or 31,000 plus verses in, in, in the Bible, uh, in the King James Version of the Bible, there's 31,102. Well, that's, uh, that's a lot of verses devoted to prophecy when you compare 8,300 to the 31,000 of, uh, of the whole of Scripture. That's a lot of verses devoted to prophecy. And there are tremendous statements that are made in Scripture that we need to take note of. First of all, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. And even though this, this particular scripture is devoted to showing us the glory of, of the uh, Christ who is to return, you know, in other words, the Messiah who is to return in, in, in all of his glory. The verse begins, I, and I fell at his feet, uh, John is saying, uh, to worship him, but this is really toward a, an angelic being. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, he says to John. Worship God, and notice what he says, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That is the very nature and purpose of prophecy. It is to give testimony and to give witness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It is to proclaim him. It is to honor him. It is to worship him. And it is to give him all the glory. All the glory. Consider also what God himself says in Isaiah chapter 46 verses 5 through 10. And I add these first few verses here, verses 5 through, through 8, because God himself now makes mention of what man makes as their gods. He says, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? They lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver in the balance and hire a goldsmith and he maketh it a god. They fall down, yea, they worship. They bear him upon the shoulder. They carry him and set him in his place, and he standeth. From his place shall he not remove, which means where he is placed, he doesn't move. Yea, one shall cry unto him, yet, not, uh, yet can he not answer, nor save him out of his trouble. In other words, the idol can't answer, the idol can't save. Remember this, and show yourselves men. Bring it again to mind, O you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. And notice what God says now of himself. For I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, 
My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. We're dealing greatly with the sovereignty of God. And how he says of himself, he declares the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end, in essence. From ancient times, the things that are not yet done. Yet he declares them. And he even says, I will do all my pleasure. As I said in a, in a recent study, we are all students of Bible prophecy. There may be that occasional expert, but we're all students. And they will tell you that they're students as well. Because we haven't seen these things happen, but we see them preparing to happen. And while things are falling into place in these latter days, defining nations and conflicts is not always easy, but with each passing day, more and more nations are being identified. But what we can know is that there are wars, there are rumors of wars abounding, and, and many are pertaining to events that are taking place today in the Middle East. There are three wars in particular, three wars that the scriptures are pointing us toward in the, in the near future, in the very near future, and then a little bit further beyond. But it's not a lot further, because there's not going to be all that much time once Christ comes for his church. So understand that. But there are three wars in particular. There is, first of all, a local war that is possibly referenced here in Psalm 83, and we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And then there is a regional war as it expands out, which more than likely is the war mentioned in Ezekiel 38. Following that, sometime, probably toward the end of what we know as the tribulation period, there is a much broader war, one that we attribute to Armageddon, and a war that involves the Antichrist, something that I will deal with more in chapters 38 and 39 of Ezekiel. But now, Psalm 83 and Ezekiel 38 have been called stage-setting prophecies. They are prophecies that are setting a stage for something that is yet to come. And they are certainly setting the stage for a number of events. One in particular would be the seven-year tribulation period and the rapture of the church. Depending on whether these prophecies take place prior to the Lord's return for the church or immediately after that great event. So in looking at things as, as much as we can from Genesis to Revelation and certainly uh, the, the prophets and, and, and the, the apostles who are dealing with prophetic issues, the, the timing would seem that, that uh, these particular wars, Psalm 83 and, and Ezekiel 38, will happen right at the beginning or that which would be a stage-setting event for the rapture of the church. So that would, could either happen before or after these wars. Nonetheless, there is some stage setting before the stage setting, which is what we want to consider uh, uh, as we go through this last section of Psalm 83. But I also want to consider these passages before we continue. And this is very, this is very uh, important for us to understand and, and establish this, uh, this foundation here. And that is what is said in Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. And again, we're setting a stage for the stage setting that is yet to come. So we're, we're kind of working our way there. But in Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 through 22, 
when Nebuchadnezzar had called together his, his wise men and said to them, I want somebody to tell me what my dream was and then interpret it. And his wise men came to him and said, well, let, let, we'll interpret your dream. No, no, he says, you have to tell me what the dream is or else I'm going to, you know, chop your heads off. They couldn't find anybody that could do it. Finally, somebody went to Daniel. and They brought Daniel before Nebuchadnezzar. But before all of this, Daniel answered. And he said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And notice what he says. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. That part you underline. He removeth kings and he setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. He revealeth a deep and secret things. He knoweth what is in the darkness and the light dwelleth with him. He removes kings. He sets up kings. Solomon would follow up on this very same thinking here. Not so much follow as far as time. He also mentions what God does with kings. Proverbs 8 verses 15 and 16. By me kings reign and princes decree justice. By me princes rule and nobles even, in all, even all the judges of the earth. And then in Proverbs 21 verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. God is in control of what's going on in this world today. As much, we, as much as we might even wonder, yet God knows what's happening. He's quite aware. And even in Romans chapter 13, Paul says in verse 1, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. So for, for whatever it's worth, maybe you, didn't like, maybe you didn't like Donald Trump before he became president. Maybe you don't like him now. Maybe you like him a lot. Maybe you voted for him. Maybe you didn't. But one thing is for sure. He is where he is because God has allowed him to be there. And you th- if you think that's a stretch, just think that back in 2008, and then for two four-year terms, Barack Obama was the president. Many of us were pulling our hairs out, you know, what's going on here? God allowed him to be president for those years. So what these passages suggest is that every president, that every prime minister and prince is placed by God according to his sovereign will. And all the more now as we see the day of Christ approaching. So knowing this, we need to consider the Arab Spring of 2010. How many of you remember the Arab Spring of that time? A few of you? Wow, only about five of you? Really? Oh, I'm going to have to do my... Okay, we're going to be here for another hour after this. How many of you remember the Arab Spring? Okay, just don't worry about lifting your hands. Nobody's going to, you know... Government's not going to come and rescue or anything. It's a, it was a revolution. 
But it was a revolution that, according to the more politically liberal in our country, oh, that, that, that would finally bring democracy and, uh, you know, and, and peace to the Arab and Middle Eastern nations. That's what they were saying. Even the previous administration. I have to remind you that there's only one democracy in the Middle East, and that is Israel. It's the only one. And it still is. Even after seven years. The Arab Spring began with a self-immolation of a Tunisian named Mohammed Bouazizi, an, an unemployed man who, who did everything he could to try to help his family. He, he would go out and he became a fruit vendor. But his goods and his merchandise, whatever he had to sell his fruit, was confiscated by a local bureaucratic inspector. Must have really affected this man because an hour later he set himself on fire. And it sparked this revolution among the political and human rights activists in Tunisia and all of the uh, labor movements and everything else. And, and it sparked this thing in Tunisia. Let me just interject here that Tunisia is part of uh, the alliance of Ezekiel 38. But I'll get to that in a, in a moment. So changes were made in the leadership in Tunisia as well as in Egypt when his president Hosni Mubarak was forced out of office in February of 2011 and was eventually put on trial. He was even put on trial in a deathbed. I mean, he was in bed, you know, being, being tried for whatever crimes they told him he had committed. By the way, and that was all done by a, a group called the Muslim Brotherhood. Now, Mubarak had a paper-thin treaty with Israel then, but it's even thinner now. And then in neighboring Libya, you all remember someone named Muammar Gaddafi? Well, he was not only overthrown during this very same time frame, but he was assassinated as well. So power shifts were taking place in what was called an Arab Spring. They were taking place in Yemen and Bahrain and, 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 Ku and Kuwait and, and other nations. And I mention all of this to say that these nations are a part of either the Psalm 83 or the Ezekiel 38 confederacies. There are two confederacies and they don't you know, they don't, uh, they don't mix. They're all different nations. And that's important to understand here. The nations that have been mentioned are now much more anti-Semitic. Nearly every one of them is anti-Semitic, but even greater than, it was, than they were before. In other words, anti-Israel. Libya and Tunisia are only two northern African countries that make up what is called put or foot in Ezekiel 27 verse 10. Those are North African nations. Africa, by the way, is a continent, and these are the nations that border the Mediterranean Sea. That would also include Morocco. Libya, of course, is mentioned in Ezekiel 38 verse 5. But lastly, before we get to the second part of Psalm 83, many of the nations mentioned in both Psalm 83 and Ezekiel 38 are supplied with weapons from Russia. 
which, if you were here on Wednesday night as we began our study in, in Ezekiel 38, know that Russia is now a major player once again in global politics, global strategies, and global military uh, issues. But uh, these nations that I've mentioned in Psalm 38 and I'm sorry, Psalm 83 and Ezekiel 38 are supplied with weapons from Russia, which makes all these connections even more intriguing, being that Russia is certainly more front and center of much that is going on in the world today. So I've, I've, I've given uh, a couple of maps here for you to just see very quickly. I, I, I gave you all this map last week in your bulletins if you were here last week. Uh, and you'll notice that these are the Psalm 83 nations. You'll notice uh, at the top, if that can be read on either side or in the middle, uh, is uh, in the northwest corner of that grouping is Gebal, which is north of... Uh, uh, 25 miles north of uh, Beirut, Lebanon. It isn't part of Lebanon there. It is part of Lebanon. Uh, Gebal, uh, Tyre, of course, is uh, this is the area that uh, Hezbollah is uh, very uh, prominent in, enemies of Israel and terrorists as well. Uh, below them is Philistia. And Philistia would, uh, would uh, cover the region of what we know today as Gaza. And they are the, they are the seat of uh, Hamas. In that region, Hamas is another terror organization. Uh, and then below them, Amalek. And uh, then if over to the uh, southwestern side is the Hagarines, which is in Egypt. And of course, Hagar, the, uh, the mother of Ishmael, was, was an Egyptian. So that is how Egypt is considered in the Psalm 83 grouping. And then you go to the eastern side and the northeastern area of Assyria. Uh, that's Ashur. And then Ammon and Moab and Edom uh, cover the areas of Jordan from, from north to south. And they, they were all, uh, or at least tied in, uh, to Esau, the uh, twin brother of, uh, of Jacob. And then further south are the Ishmaelites, and they uh, represent uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, United Arab Emirates and uh, Qatar and uh, Dubai and all of these other areas in that uh, 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 Arabian Peninsula region. That is Psalm 83. The next map kind of is, is a, a more of a blown up picture here of the Ezekiel 38 nations. Now, I, as I mentioned back on, on Wednesday night, I, I'm, I'm just using this as an example. Uh, I'm not particularly pleased with where Gomer is up there on the, in, in the northwestern side. But Magog or Magog is uh, everything that is north of, of Israel down into the area where Meshech, Tubal, and Togarma, which is Turkey, modern-day Turkey. In between the Black Sea, the Caspian Sea, as I mentioned the other night as well, are some states like Georgia, uh, uh, Azerbaijan, and, uh, and Armenia, which uh, Russia wants to take over in that region. Of course, Persia is Iran. And you'll notice, after mentioning all those other nations, put Libya, Kush, that's the northern African nations, everything is aiming toward Israel. Now you see a little dot. In relation to everything else, that little dot is Israel. That little dot is where everybody's headed. To this day, that little dot is what everybody wants. 
not only those that are near, nearest and adjacent to, but even those outside of. And we're going to see why, the, why there's a two-tier approach to, this, to these wars. The Psalm 83 nations are what can be called the inner ring of nations because they are directly adjacent to Israel. Every one of those are adjacent to Israel. The Ezekiel 38 nations can then be considered the outer ring of nations. And what they have in common based upon the scriptures is that they hate Israel and they seek to wipe Israel off the map. If that particular phrase began with with, uh, uh, Nasser in Egypt back in the 50s and before, and and then we began to hear that a little bit more in the the 1990s and the early 2000s from from leaders like uh, uh, Ahmadinejad back in Persia, saying the very same thing, you'll notice it goes from the inner ring out to the outer ring. Let's say this, the same idea goes on. Any, any nation, even if you want to include Russia and, and the states of Kazakhstan, uh, Afghanistan, uh, uh, Turkmenistan, and uh, whatever other stands that there might be out there, all of those nations are primarily Muslim today. Well, the hatred of Israel just continues to grow and grow and grow. When you want to destroy a nation, when you want to get rid of them for whatever reason, some would say, well, Russia only wants, uh, wants, wants Israel because they want all of the, the rights to the, nat- uh, the natural gas that they have or whatever other resources they have. But why are they coming down against this one little nation? And yet, why haven't they done anything since 1948 when Israel began to defend themselves for their existence? So what they have in common is that they seek to wipe Israel off the map because they hate Israel. So the question is, oh, by the way, they not only hate Israel, they hate the God of Israel, which is your God and my God. So the question is, since these two passages contain contain different groups of nations, are there then two wars in rapid succession? You have to come in the next few Wednesdays to find out. Actually, I'll tell you, I I believe there are two wars that will happen in rapid succession. The first war, the Psalm 83 war, and then the other nations will come through them, right through them, to get to Israel again, if they can. So what is to become of the nations in Psalm 83? Now, I have to say that there are some Bible prophecy teachers and students that believe that Psalm 83 is already fulfilled, that Israel has already defeated these enemies. Now, to a certain degree, they have, both in 1948, 1956, 1967, Six-Day War, 1973, uh, Yom Kippur War, but not to the extent that they are taken out of the way before the Gog-Magog war begins. So, what is to become of these nations? I want you to turn back to Psalm 83, and let's, let's conclude this now. And it's going to be not as, you know, we're not going to drag it out, because there's just some things that we need to point out, so you'll know what God is going to do. First of all, you have to understand that this is a request of Israel to God. This is a request of Israel to God. They say, do unto them. First, Asaph lists those nations. 
Then he says in verse 9, do unto them as the Midianites, as to Sisera. Sisera, the, the, the commander of the armies of, of, uh, of Canaan, or the Canaanites and the Midianites. As to Yabin, the king of the Canaanites. And what he did to them at the, the brook of Kison, which, which perished at Endor. They became as dung for the earth. You all know what dung is. I don't have to explain that, especially at this time of the morning. Make their nobles like Oreb and like Zeb. Yea, all their princes as Zeba and Zalmunna. Now these are not characters in Star Wars. These are actual people that lived in the time of the judges. They were kings, they were princes and kings. Oreb and Zeb, princes. Zeba and Zalmunna, kings of the Midianites. Who said... Now listen what they said. Let us take to ourselves the houses of God in possession. They were claiming the things that God's people had or Israel had to themselves. So they not just hate the people of Israel, they hate the God of Israel. Oh my God. Make them like a wheel as the stubble before the wind. Giving us this picture of that wheel that crushes the, the grain, you know, to, to, uh, to allow the, uh, uh, the chaff to be taken off of the grains. And, and then the chaff is thrown up in the air and the wind carries it away. Make it like that, Lord. And then not only that, as the fire burneth the wood, as the flame setteth the mountains on fire, so persecute them with thy tempest. Make them afraid with thy storm. After 1948, after 1956, after 1967, after 1973, and between there and now, are they afraid of the God of Israel yet? No. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek thy name, O Lord. Let them be confounded and troubled forever. Yea, let them be put to shame and perish that men may know that thou whose name alone is Yahweh or Jehovah art the most high over all the earth. And if Psalms, if the Psalms as a whole are expressions of the worship and the prayers, the hopes and the ambitions of God's people Israel, then these prayers will certainly be answered by the Lord. Because if there is one thing that we know of our God and his people is that he will not let them perish completely and forever. He will not. Though they go through a lot of fire, though they go, though they go through a lot of storms, he will not let them perish. And he remembers every enemy. It is interesting that much of the focus of their prayer has to do with what the Lord himself did to the enemies mentioned in the book of Judges. Midian, Sisera, Yabin were dealt with by Deborah and Barak, or Deborah and Barak, the judges of Israel at that time. You can read about that today in a few minutes in Judges 4 and 5. I'd encourage you to read that. The combined Canaanite army had 900 chariots. That, that, they, you know, chariots have to be driven by horses. So, you know, that, that was a big, powerful kind of a weapon against, you know, a band of people with rocks and stones and 
whatever kind of implements that they could use. And still, Deborah led a small army against the enemies with God's plan to flood the Kishon Brook, and that immobilized the chariots. Chariots are really good until they get into mud. That was God's plan. And eventually, Sisera, the commander of the enemy's army, he escapes on foot. He was brought into the tent of a woman, Jael, who, by the way, wasn't really, she wasn't a, 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 a children, a, a, an Israelite. So he, she welcomes Sisera in, and he asks for water. She gives him milk. He, he kind of gets comfortable, and then she proceeds to drive a nail right into Sisera's head. Ouch. And we're not talking about a little nail, man. We're talking about nails, you know. <laughs> Obviously, the Confederacy formed against the Lord and his people is and has always been satanic. And the similarities, by the way, just briefly, but the similarities to Genesis 3.15 seemed to stand out as two women defeated Israel's enemy. Genesis 3.15, of course, says, and, and this is God speaking to the devil himself, speaking to the serpent, who was Satan. I will put enmity, hostility, between thee and the woman. And between thy seed and her seed it shall bruise thy head. Yeah, that's quite a bruise. And thou shalt bruise his heel. That's just a little mini fulfillment. The real fulfillment comes at the cross. And then there's the defeat of Oreb and Zeb, Zeba and Zalmunna, princes and kings of Midian who were oppressing Israel. They hated Israel back then. We know that God raised up Gideon to be that judge and rescuer of his people. So when you read chapter 7 and 8, you know, I, I ask you to read 4 and 5. Just keep reading until you get past chapter 8. Just a few more minutes longer. But uh, Ziba and Zalmunna were both executed by Gideon himself. But what was significant is what is found in Judges 8 verse 21. And I want to draw your attention to the last phrase of of Judges 8.21. I'll read the first part. Zeba and Zalmunna said, Rise thou and fall upon us. They, uh, they were going to have some young kid, you know, kill these guys, and he just kind of, I guess he got afraid and didn't do it. So in their pride, they said, Oh, listen, we, you know, we, we, we will be remembered so much better if you, Gideon, kill us. <laughs> That's what they were saying. Yes. It's kind of like, you know, that idea of, of people today, you know, uh, you know we're, we're going we're gonna to go out there and blow up people and, you know, we're going to, you know, uh, these suicide bombers, you know, and then everybody, you know, praises them. Their, their praise is only here on this earth, folks. Just, just thought I'd let you know that. They're thinking they're going to have, you know, 72 virgins in heaven waiting for them. I think they're sadly mistaken. So Gideon arose and he slew Zeba and Zalmunna and took away the ornaments that were on the camel's necks. Now, what is important for us to understand here is that word ornaments. Some of your translations already say they're crescent ornaments, right? 
But that particular word for ornaments in the Hebrew is saharonim. Saharonim literally means that they were in the shape of crescent moons. And of course we know that the crescent moon is the central symbol of Islam today. So think, this was way before Islam even became an ideology or a false religion. Already was the crescent moon considered as a symbol for them. Consider that the crescent moon was a symbol of the pagan god Sin, S-I-N, which later became known as Bel, which took a few different little uh, formations like Baal, Beelzebub, and then Habul, the Nabataean moon god that eventually morphed into a god named Allah. And by the way, folks, we don't worship the same God. Don't get sucked into that diplomatic hogwash. We do not worship the same God. We worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Yaakov, Jacob. We worship the God of Israel, who is also the God of the believer in Yeshua, Jesus Christ, who said, I am God and there is none like me. I am God and there is none else. So, I don't know where these politicians get all this stuff. Well, I know where they get it. They get it right straight from the devil himself. Because that's the devil's God. So, the confederacy against God. Oh, by the way, you know, in some countries, I'd be arrested for what I just said. Don't encourage anybody. The confederacy against God and the children of Israel claim and misappropriate to themselves all that the Lord gave to Israel. That's verses 13 and 14 of our text. So what will their end be then? Now, I'm going to talk a little bit more about Syria later. But I'm just going to say clearly that Damascus is going to be destroyed. Isaiah 17. All you have to do is read the first verse of that. And it just says right off, Damascus is going to be destroyed. I've talked a little bit about it. I I even said that we don't see Syria mentioned in either Psalm 83 or Ezekiel 38, but there's a reason for that, and I'll get back to that, because, uh, well, you'll just have to come on on Wednesday nights. Uh, Okay. And then the nations east of the Jordan River will be obliterated. Ammon, Moab, Edom, Jeremiah 49, read that. And then Egypt themselves are going to be judged in Isaiah 19. Every one of these nations, judged by God. But eventually all the nations. Consider, if you will, Joel chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. I'm going to do this real quick because we're almost out of time. Well, in essence, we're already out of time. Okay, just I'll let you know. But Joel chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, it says, For behold, in those days and in that time, when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat and will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel. God is going to plead for his people 
whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. That's the great sin that they will be judged for that is going on today in the United Nations and in other confederate, uh, confederacies across the world today. That all they want to do is part the land. And we're thinking now that this, this little nation, this little strip of land that's the size of New Jersey is all that they're wanting to part. It's the city of Jerusalem, the city that God says is his city. The land that he promised Israel goes from the river, uh, the Nile River in Egypt all the way to the river Euphrates. That's what he promised. That's what they will have as their nation, as their, as their land. So we can see the struggles over all of that today. But he says, and they have cast lots for my people and have given a boy for a harlot, sold a girl for wine that they might drink. Folks, this is, this is not hyperbole. This is not exaggerated. This has happened. This has happened over the years. How they've mistreated God's people. Yea, and what have you to do with me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the coasts of Palestine? Very quickly here, I know that I said last night I don't want to spend too much time, but I have to. Why is the word Palestine here in, in, in the Old Testament? Now, some have criticized the King James translators a lot for putting that word there because there was no Palestine in the time of, of, uh, of, of, of the prophets. Why that word? I say it's there prophetically. Because what is one of the greatest enemies to Israel today, but the very people that live among them, which are called Palestinians, which, by the way, there is no Palestinian. There can be no Palestinian state because there was no Palestine. I think this is something that was added by the Lord allowed for us to understand where we are today, to make sure that we understand all the enemies of Israel at the time of these judgments. Will you render me a recompense? And if you recompense me swiftly and speedily, will I return your recompense upon your own head? Because you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried into your temples my goodly pleasant things. God is saying, I'm, I'm not going to forget these things. And I want to conclude with Zechariah 14, verses 1 through 4, and then make a few concluding statements before we close. I hope I make it quick. But behold, the day of the Lord, behold, the day of the Lord cometh. The day is coming. Every person that ever says, you know, I, I, don't, I don't believe that, uh, you know, the prophecies are for today anymore. I mean, the, you know, I believe that, well, you know, some guys have said, you know, that, that all these prophecies have already come to pass. No, this hasn't happened. This has not happened. Psalm 83 has not happened. Psalm, or, or Ezekiel 38 has not happened. Not as it has told us in the scripture. Not happened. It is going to happen because God says it is. But here he says, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. A lot of stuff is going to happen to the people of Jerusalem and Israel. Half of the city shall go into captivity. The residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount, the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley. And half of the mountain shall be removed toward the north and half of it toward the south. 
That's always great to explain when we're going to, we go to Israel and we look at that eastern gate and say, this is all going to happen right in this area. So I want us to have some perspective about all of that. The, the, the perspective begins with, with these, these passages of Scripture. I'm, I'm not going to name them to you, but this is what we've already studied before. Number one, the Lord God does not delight in the death of the wicked. He does not delight in the death of the wicked. So we need to understand the character of our God. Our God is holy, 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 but he is true, he is righteous, he is just, and he's also love, and he's also life. That's our God. Just compare the differences of religions, as it were. The Judeo-Christian religion or the Judeo-Christian faith is based upon the God who created the heavens and the earth the way he says in his word. The God of the other faith. All we have to do is look at what the people do when they get offended and they go about wanting to kill people. Unfortunately, in history, some Christians have kind of taken that particular thing, but overall, that's just a small, small number, percentage. Those who have followed the word of God know that we are to love even Jesus told us how we are to be. He, the apostles told us how we are to live before we see the day of Christ approach. We are to live righteously and godly in this present age. We are to love one another. Jesus said that to his disciples before he went to the cross. And it continued on as the very witness of the disciples who were giving their lives for the sake of the gospel. So this is how we are to live. And we are to let the God who is in control of all things right now give us peace and comfort in our hearts to know that he is in control of all these things. So quit putting your foot through your TVs when you see something you don't like on TV. I have to do the same thing because I want to, uh, you know, I want to give them a good kick, you know. Oh, you know, we get, but then I, but you have to come to the realization, wait a minute, God is in control. All of these things are leading to two things. The rapture of the church and the finishing of God's judgments, chastisements upon Israel so that they can finish that and then they will see him whom they have pierced and they will return back to their God and that's why Paul says in Romans chapters 9 through 11, all Israel shall be saved. This is God's plan. And we're part of that plan until the day that Jesus said what? Well, we're going to study pretty soon in the Gospel of John. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and, re and receive you unto myself so that where I am, there you may be also. And then we're going to talk about the importance of looking for the coming of Jesus for the church. But as for another Sunday, shall we stand and let's pray.